Simple Beep, episode 86, General Magic. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are going to discuss what I consider as almost a lost chapter in the history of Apple, or sort of a weird side parallel universe that I didn't even know about, but actually happened, which is the formation of a company called General Magic. There's a new documentary out this year that we have just watched and that you can watch as well, and that's going to form the basis of our discussion. But before we get into that, as usual, a bit of quick follow-up. Our episode 79 was about the history of Bungie, the company that made Halo, and more specifically, the games they made before they made Halo. And if you'd like a fun video component to that episode, YouTuber Kilgrews has posted a nice bit of uh, retrospective complete with gameplay footage from all of the early Bungie releases, Gnop, Operation Desert Storm, Minotaur, Pathways into Darkness, and even all the way into Marathon. Uh, So we'll put a link in the show notes to this video so you can watch uh, some actual footage of these early Mac games being played. You know, it's going all the way back when you say, and even into Marathon. (laughs) Right. Like, Marathon is recognizable to us. We thought the deep cuts were Gnop. So yes, we'll link to that in the notes. And now on to, I think that's all for follow-up, so on to our main topic, which is the General Magic documentary, which you can find at generalmagicthemovie.com. So this project has been in the works for a while. And I think the first that we heard about it was maybe a year and a half ago, which was also when it got its first press. I believe that it was in April of 2018 was the first time that a cut of this documentary was shown at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I found out about it like a week later, like when The Verge wrote it up after the screening happened, which made me very angry because I could have gone and seen it at the Tribeca Film Festival here in New York if I had only known about it. And then it got pretty good reviews from that and then went, I guess, back into probably the editing room for Final Polish would be my guess, and went pretty quiet for a long time. Unlike some of the crowdfunded documentaries in the area that we've seen where like most Kickstarter-type or Indiegogo-type campaigns where you always want to give little, like, dole out little bits to your backers, even if the project is not completely finished, to keep them happy and keep them assured that you're making progress. This project pretty much went under the radar for several months and didn't come back as far as I could tell until maybe, like, winter of last year, uh, maybe the spring, where they started doing some small events and small showings, like one-off showings in different theaters around the United States. And I think it was earlier this year that I missed one of those. None of them came back as close uh, as like within New York City for me. I could have like driven two hours upstate and gone to something and it just didn't work out in my schedule. I think the same was for you, Brian. You're like, well, I could drive three hours away in Florida and maybe go see this. Yeah. But like a a six hour round trip for a 90 minute documentary is quite a lot. (laughs) Uh, Again, that got it into a pretty good press cycle and getting good praise in the media. And that was what kicked off like, okay, is this going to become 
available to the masses who want to see it. You know, the, the huge slavering masses of simple beep listeners <laughs> and our like-minded people. And the answer was eventually yes. There was a brief period where we thought it was only going to stream on Showtime. That was where they announced they had a streaming partner. And we're like, oh, are we going to have to like sign up for a month of the Showtime streaming plan and then cancel it. Like a week later, they said, or you can pre-order it on iTunes. And we all went, yes, please take my $20 and and I will get this when it is ready. And it is now ready. It's been out for about three, four weeks, I think, as we're recording this. Um, came out in it was either the very end of September or beginning of October 2019. And it is here. And it is for us the main topic that we're going to discuss today. Longtime listeners of Simple Beep or people who dig through our archives may remember all the way back in our first year of shows, we dedicated three episodes to watching Triumph of the Nerds. And uh, watching this documentary, General Magic, almost felt like a throwback <laughs> to those days where we we are going to discuss the technology and, and how it affected our world uh, in general and our world as early Macintosh users. Uh, but we're basically just going to follow the structure of the movie. And um, if you enjoy the way we take on <laughs> this documentary and you haven't listened to our Triumph of the Nerds episodes or seen Triumph of the Nerds for yourself, uh, definitely go back and do one or both of those as well. Yeah. And I think that we will try to provide a little bit of general background on the topics that are discussed, the company, the people and its products, so that you don't necessarily have to pause the podcast right now and go watch the documentary. Although I suggest seeing it either before or after listening to this episode. Yeah. So maybe we should talk just a little bit about what we knew about General Magic even before we saw the documentary, because, you know, we've been steeped in this for almost five years now doing this show, right? And you think that, um, in, in fact, my wife said to me, I'm, I'm amazed that you guys still have topics. And you know, <laughs> sometimes we say that too, but we keep coming up with good things to talk about on the show. But this was one that I think we had done the show for three or four years, you know, until we heard about this documentary. This was not even on my radar, despite the relatively close connection to Apple. Towards the end of the documentary, when we actually start seeing finished devices based on the general magic technology, it recalled, I think, in Mac Addict or Mac World or, you know, one of those magazines in the time that we were subscribers um, had profiled the actual device, which, as we'll get into and the documentary gets into, is not actually manufactured by the general magic company. Um it's it's a Sony product, but the interface in there, and I think even like a, a, a product review of the device itself is something that I remember consuming and kind of passing on because it like, was it a Palm Pilot? Not really. It was a lot thicker. Uh, so what was it? Was it an E-Mate? Not really, but it kind of has HyperCard Susan Care icons. And so I think I just didn't really get it <laughs> at the time and allowed myself to forget about it much in the way that um, I experienced open doc as it was happening. It's like, I don't really get this. I understand that this is an Apple thing and I'm reading about it, but I'm just going to let <laughs> this one fall to the history wayside. Yeah. And both of the things that you just mentioned, the e-mate and the Palm pilot are both anachronisms in terms of, you could not have actually said that at the time that 
general magic was forming their devices because they came later. Yeah. So really, I don't know what I, maybe I just, yeah, I didn't have the frame of reference for like, what is this thing? In hindsight, it does remind me of both of those things. Right. And another time that this might have come up in our discussions, our research is when we did a couple of shows on the Newton. And I'm not sure that it necessarily did. Um, But obviously, we'll see that the general magic device was very much in the same space as the Newton. It was aiming to be one of the first, I guess, at the time, they were called palm top devices. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't think that that was a word that general magic used, or at least it was selectively not used in the edited form of the documentary. They were, they were basically talking about the distinction between desktop and pocket computers, which is uh, a lot of how we think of our devices today. In fact, maybe that's a good place to get into the intro to the documentary and the way that the filmmakers have chosen to frame this story of the formation, rise, and fall of General Magic. Yeah, excellent point. Um, before the like the filmed footage starts and the music swells, there is a disclaimer on screen to put your devices into airplane mode. Um, and you know, like, sure, you see that when you go to movie theaters, it's a it's a common courtesy to not be on your devices as the movie is going. It's not usually part of the film itself, however. And so, like you said, Ed, this is kind of setting the the framing and the context of this documentary which is the the general magic company technology and end results. Um, Even though as they quickly go on to say via voiceover, failure isn't the end. Failure is the beginning. General magic, spoiler alert, uh, did not end up being a successful world running company, Um, but it did kind of set the tone, set a blueprint for these devices that are now so ubiquitous and such a part of our everyday lives that it, it, that they do warrant a message um, that's part of the film to uh, maybe place them (laughs) into airplane mode so that you can appreciate the story. Yeah. And it does almost start with a literal blueprint and that's some of the marketing imagery that they've used around the film. I think one of the, the posters actually looks more like a, yeah, it does in fact look exactly like a blueprint drawing white on blue, but that is actually derived from these ink and pencil on white paper drawings that are part of the history of this project. And they show it in one of the first scenes is this binder, this red binder that is like the general magic Bible that was the brainchild of its founder, Mark Perrot. Uh, who he came up with this hundreds of pages story of what a pocket computer that was also a phone would look like. And yeah, in 1992, 1993, all you could do with that kind of idea was play it out on paper. But he played it out in such detail that he was convinced that the technology was only just just over the horizon and that this was enough to form a company uh, with the blessing of Apple in part and with a lot of old Apple talent and see where they could go with it. Mm-hmm. And so they had this basically smartphone design that they were operating from. And then as we get into the opening 
interviews uh, or just before the opening interviews of the documentary, this is kind of laid out that this thesis that general magic was the birthplace of the smartphone because they equate it to saying that billions of people use the devices that are born out of this company that was itself a failure. And at the outset, I'm like, wow, this is a really bold stake to plant in the ground. That like, really? This company that made a thing that I I know of as an Apple historian, as kind of an also-ran losing competitor to the Newton? Like, that was the birth of the smartphone revolution in 1992, when most people didn't even have cell phones? I couldn't see the connection. But the fact that they make that bold statement up front, I don't know that I necessarily agree with it 100%, but they do lay a lot of of claims on that as they go through the 90 minutes of the film. And that harkens back to something about the, the framing again. Um, and uh, the, the binder that you talked about as we get into during the development process of general magic technology and you know, some of its final shipping results, we don't see immediately something that harkens to uh, an iPhone or an Android device. Um, but, you know, there are certainly some of these sketches kind of look like a modern smartphone with a forehead and chin, like uh, an early era iPhone. And so it's clear that they have so much material to pull from when they put this 90 minute film together that they can selectively pick and choose the pieces that really do tie into this narrative. Um, so there may be a little bit of bias there, but I think, like you said, I'm not 100 percent on board with the thesis, but I'm like 85, 90 percent there. <laughs> Yeah, and it's still really cool to see even a glimpse of those ideas that were come up with basically a priori that early on. I mean, I have still, I've either scanned them or I still even have the like pieces of notebook paper of these essentially smartphone designs that I drew when I was bored in like 2002. And they were based on oh, well, I have a Palm 5X that I use every day, and it's this really useful PDA, and it's pocketable. What if it was also a camera and a smartphone? Or a camera and a phone? Mm -hmm. Like, what if I just took these three devices and combined them into the most useful one? And they didn't even have that to work off of. Yeah, so the story of General Magic really stretches from the late 1980s to the mid-1990s. But the the story has to begin because this has uh, some very close adjacency to Apple in 1984. And the film is almost structured year by year with with little title cards that announce the year and the the like the main location where things are happening in that year. And so it starts in 1984 and its first interview subject is Tony Fidel, who you may recognize, I think, currently at Nest under Google and Alphabet but is also colloquially the father of the iPod and instrumental on the development of the iPhone. And Fidel starts by talking about how he interpreted the tech landscape all the way back in 1984. He's saying he was basically just still a kid in Detroit at that point, and that he says it was all about the Mac, at least from his perspective. You know, this was this was the time of the bifurcation where people were going to start to take sides in what became the Mac versus PC wars of the 90s. But for him, 
It was all about the Mac. It was the most exciting technology that was available at the time. And because of the way that it had been promoted and marketed, many of the team members were known by name and by image in the trade publications and industry magazines that enthusiasts like Fidel were following very closely. And he said, you know, the Mac team were rock stars. That was the term that he used to describe them, that if you were in anything having to do with computing or engineering, they were the idols as much as in the music industry, like literal rock stars were the people to follow. I was also struck by that. And I was wondering who the the kind of contemporary technology industry rock stars would be. And I think in maybe uh, an indication of where the industry has gone, they would all be software people, like CEOs of software companies or small software app startups who have come up with a new idea. Um, there really isn't a lot for like the whole widget, as it were, like the, the Macintosh system and the all-in-one Macintosh hardware that got pulled out of a bag. Or if you're looking to personalities, you wind up looking at people who are senior at Apple, people who who have name recognition, especially within the tech community, but even outside. Um, you know, like Craig Federighi would be someone that everyone who listens to this show knows. But even people like Johnny Ive, were, who is no longer at Apple now, but is a name that actually escaped the realm of Apple. He was obviously hugely influential in designing the whole widget, or at least designing the hardware of the widget. And the fact that he has these other interests, which eventually led him away from Apple, also got him known outside of Apple to the point that people knew him for just his sort of pure design sense. I think the closest I can get is Elon Musk. Oh, sure. He's definitely seen as a, a mainstream rock star and like the Iron Man influence and all that stuff. But yeah, I kind of wish that, uh, Ed, that you and I had not maybe just been born as this had been happening, but maybe a couple years earlier so we could have appreciated what the atmosphere felt like. Right. Because the time that we were, by the time we were finally figuring out what the heck was going on with Max, uh, General Magic had already spun up and was spinning out. <laughs> Maybe to that point, um, the documentary has this interview with Tony Fidel reminiscing about 1984, the launch of the Mac, uh, this rock star team from within Apple that wasn't necessarily all of Apple itself, but this tight focused group of people who had name recognition. Um, but another thing that happened in that time window was the ousting of Steve Jobs from Apple. And this is just one of many things that, uh, that resonates with something that happened either today or recent to today. The They have a scan of a couple different newspaper articles about Steve's ousting. And there's one headline that I did a freeze frame. Uh, so I'll read it here. Apple, has it lost its bite? Macintosh remains a hit, but skeptics don't see equally innovative products ahead. And like, so <laughs> we've now been through this a second time when Steve Jobs passed away and we already had iPhone and iPad and that was, you know, one of the more recent Apple's doomed press cycles. Yeah. And I liked the way that this documentary touched on the Steve Jobs ouster story because they didn't dwell on it too much. They didn't blow it up into a huge battle. They had a couple of main purposes for actually talking about it. It was one to talk about the installation of Scully and his, uh, you know, how he came to be calling the shots at Apple, but not 
to place him as a villain, at least not yet, and I would argue not at all, really, uh, because he is interviewed for this and and tells some some interesting stories, not rehashing the same stories that he's told elsewhere. And the other thing about it was to remind us that for the original Mac team, they were basic. Steve was the glue that held them together. And with him removed and not by their choice, they were at loose ends. And that was what caused this sort of, there was just this potential energy that was within the original Mac team and these rock stars, they would, they wanted to perform and the industry and the smart business that was coming down from the board and Scully was, well, keep making slightly better Macs. And they were essentially restless. That was what drove them out of Apple. And because they were all so tightly knit, so many of them wound up at general magic, which was, Basically, the well, there was Mark Perrot who had the the initial idea, and then on the talent side, you had Atkinson and Hertzfeld, who were, uh, you know, if this if this was a rock band, they they were the leads. Yeah. As part of this uh, early Apple stuff, they do show some of the Macintosh launch at the Flint Center, and then one of the interesting things. Uh, in terms of setting, many of the participants are interviewed in their home or in an outdoor setting. But there is a significant portion of the interview that's done jointly with Andy Hertzfeld and Joanna Hoffman, who was on the original Mac team and then worked in marketing at General Magic. And they did this interview in the Flint Center Auditorium. Uh, most of them, most of it, them just, you know, sitting in the seats. Uh, but there's a portion where they go up on stage and they're kind of reimagining what it was like on that day in 1984. Uh, and it's even more bittersweet now. Obviously, they took this footage probably in 2017, 2018. But now, a little extra hindsight, just this year, this summer of 2019, Deanza College, which is the owner of the Flint Center, has decided that it's going to be demolished. So there they are in this place that is, in in terms of the filmmaking, played up as an important pivotal place in not just Apple's history, but technology history, and therefore the history of like humanity. And now we know that it's not going to be around for much longer, and that all of these, which actually, in a sense, kind of adds to it, that it's these people and the and the products that they made are what endures, and where they announced it is actually more ephemeral, even though it's a building. So that covers the introduction to the film and the kind of uh, tone setting that happened in 1984. And then it skips ahead to 1989 with Mark Peratt and his genesis for the idea that would become general magic. And this was something else, like one of many things that I had no idea of before watching the film, but I guess there was this kind of uh, like gathering of influential technology oriented minds at the Aspen Institute in Colorado um, that like was kind of like what I think Davos is today or, or other things like that. I know Apple has its like, 
um, top 50 or top 100 most important people take these kind of offsite meetings to generate ideas and catch everybody up. Um, so this sounds like it was another one of those things where uh, some people came together and, and started to to think about these ideas. There's a good line um, that I think is from Parat where he says basically like that the feeling at these uh, get togethers, these conferences was that you had a mandate to invent the future because the future your parents handed you was broken. And again, like <laughs> this is a message that we hear a lot today, maybe not necessarily because of like devices and things and more of more pressing issues like climate change, but uh, we don't need to get into that here. It's just necessary to reiterate that. Um, I'm, I'm going to get into that a little bit later, <laughs> but, um, but it's an interesting thing to keep in mind. This section of the film is largely an interview with Mark um, where he shares some of the sketches that Ed was talking about in this infamous red binder. And um, so there's a bunch of things going on uh, that some are kind of quick blink. You'll miss them. Some of them are actually discussed. Uh, one thing that I, again, like paused, <laughs> paused the film so I could make sure I got it right is there's a, a sketch of the hardware, the, the idea machine. Um, and there's a note pointing to it that says just one quote, real, switch please i loved this i mean i would hope that the inclusion of that particular frame in the documentary is for the exact same reason that we love it now is that these people still follow technology still love technology and know the patterns and jokes about the patterns of how apple creates (laughs) their devices particularly smartphones and and the iPhone, it's it's just so good. This is again where where you start to see it's like, wow, this is like this whole this whole shadow universe that happened over here on the side. And and so much earlier than we think of things, where we would go, Oh yeah, like only one button, that's a you know, that's a Johnny Ive thing. It's like, no, no, that was way before Ive was anywhere close to Apple. <laughs> You may also even think that based on the timing of these sketches, 1989, maybe it's a joke looking backward at the one button mouse. But yeah, Ed, like you said, it also is the one home button iPhone that was way more close to the device that uh, the general magic people were, were thinking of and working on. And I think that that was genuinely what this meant. This this meant there should be a physical power switch and nothing else. Other things that are included in these uh, very early concept sketches and early interviews about the idea was the name of the device as potentially being the pocket crystal, um, which has a whole bunch of like implications or or context implications uh, that I thought was was pretty cool, but probably not as cool as <laughs> the hardware requirement for just one switch. I think actually a better name than it wound up with in the end. Crystal is sort of mystical, ties in with the general magic name. Pocket is extremely important for people who are not used to having pocketable devices at at this stage in technology history. Uh, and then, you know, even something like, oh, Crystal, if you're not talking about like mysticism, could also refer to the display technology that they were using and things like that. A really excellent uh, code name that never went anywhere. It also abbreviates down to PC. And if this had taken off back then, as instead of, you know, like in the late 2000s, uh, maybe that would have been the PC everyone talked about, the Pocket Crystal. Drink a Crystal Pepsi while you work on your Pocket Crystal. 
extremely 90s. Uh, so uh, this is a point that I wrote down in my notes, and I probably should have gone back and listened to uh, a, a couple more times to get it clear. But essentially, it sounds like Apple spun out a team that would become General Magic. Clearly, some of these engineers, the the rock stars, you've got Andy Hertzfeld, Bill Atkinson, Joanna Hoffman from the marketing team. Um, these are all Apple employees. But again, like we've talked about, Steve left... Uh, John Scully's there and just focusing on the Mac line. And this is one of the things where Scully comes across as both a good businessman and in- incredibly human. Things that I think because of the era of Apple that he oversaw, he is often not equated with either of those. Uh, but the more that I see him talk in interviews, I think of honestly, both of those things are true. And what he was trying to do as a good CEO does is to balance the pressures from above and below. I think it's all too common that we think in just common parlance and looking at companies, the CEO is the head of the company, buck stops with them. No, like the CEO reports to the board. The CEO has even more powerful bosses and who are even worse, a committee of bosses. <laughs> And what they were pressuring him to do at the time was to improve the desktop computing line, which was the Mac. And his team that made this revolutionary product were dissatisfied with squeezing incremental improvements at best out of the Mac. And so his solution to this problem was to say, well, I can, you know, the potential solutions are you could just tell them, Them's the brakes, you have to work on the Mac, and then you risk them just quitting. Or what you can do, what he saw as the optimal solution was to say, okay, I'm going to lose, if I don't disobey my bosses and get fired out of the CEO role, which eventually happened, but not yet. (laughs) If I listen to them, I'm going to lose this talent. I know that they're going to go outside Apple. But can I do something that will keep them allied to us, friendly with us? And that was what he did was he got Apple to let these people graciously, gracefully go with kind of the door open behind them, right? Mm -hmm. And to give them some of their seed funding so that it would be like, look, we are still friends here. We are excited about what you are doing, but the board cannot give you the full budget for this. If you're going to do this, you're going to have to go out and raise your own money. We'll keep in touch, but you're doing something over there. And that's how I how I interpreted this. And uh, as we'll get into and as the film gets into, the idea of general magic almost becomes like a an, an umbrella over a consortium of companies that each bring a different piece of uh, bringing the technology to life to the table. Obviously, there's Apple, where a lot of the the actual talent came from, and some seed backing. There's going to be telephony, and so uh, telecom's going to come in. There's going to be people who actually have to make the hardware. Uh, so yeah, so and establishing Apple as one of the like the top dogs in this consortium. Uh, I think yeah, that's the best way to describe this relationship. Right, like you're going to need to depend on other companies in the future, but you should always think of us first. Uh, at this point, the film goes back to their interview with Tony Fidel. And so now that that general magic exists as an entity, 
he's like, well, that's now where Andy and Bill are. That company has Andy and Bill and I have to be there. And this starts the, the kind of the, the sub storyline of Tony Fidel's rise from like a young engineer from Detroit, making his way to the Valley and turning into the Tony Fidel that we know today. Right. That five-year fast forward is crucial in his life because it goes from him being a high schooler in suburban Detroit to being to have graduated from the University of Michigan, which gets a three-second cameo in, that I noticed. I'm like, oh, it's the Diag. Cool. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he is at this point graduated from college with an engineering degree looking for a job. And he says, this is a place I have to go. And there's a funny bit where he just he just hounds them until until they give him a job. <laughs> yeah, this is a note that I have farther down in our show outline, but we may as well just get to it here. Um, it's clear that Tony Fidel is the through line of this telling of the general magic story, even though uh, Mark Peratt is the the CEO, is the visionary, the kind of the Steve Jobs figure. And there are these rock star engineers that provided the inspiration for Tony to even show up. There are all these people um, in a larger story. And Tony starts off as kind of like the lowest rung engineer. But uh, it's it's structured. The film is structured in such a way that his experience throughout the company is the through line and the driving force. Yeah. And he's also one of the sort of funny contrasts because there's lots of this good, uh, good footage that was actually taken on film at the time, contemporaneous film footage, uh, basically a documentary crew that got some access to general magic at the time. But for Tony Fidel, he's got this like shoulder length, unkempt just out of college hair and now you know he's got a shaved head and it's like well life comes at you fast (laughs) (laughs) but uh life uh life went in a good direction for him and that's made pretty pretty obvious from from the start that he's one of the success stories that have come out of this so to wrap up this initial founding phase of general magic they come back to scully and he has this quote that has been used in the in the promos for the documentary as well. Uh, and man, I I feel this. He says that General Magic was the most important company that's come out of Silicon Valley that no one's ever heard of. Guilty as charged. <laughs> All right. So we jump ahead two years. Now we're in 1991 and the company is in full swing. They're making hardware prototypes of their pocket crystal device. Um, And they're also working on the software, the operating system that it runs on and the the apps. So even though they're not calling them apps in so far as we do today, but uh, the the user experience. Um, And so we get some more interviews here, but we also get like, as you just mentioned, some of this good documentary footage from the early days of the company where some employees are showing us hardware prototypes or walking us through some of the different software functions. Right. And I think I'm sure that the either rediscovery or rights transfer or who knows what, whatever happened to this film footage was the core of what allowed this entire project to exist. Without it, it would be a much less powerful look into the company's history. Everything would have been the public appearances at product demos and that sort of thing, and the retrospective interviews, and we would be left to 
imagine, maybe through still images only, what it was like being inside the General Magic office. But we get several, maybe 10 or 12 minutes of actual inside the office footage, which really brings things to life in terms of how they were creating things. And uh, then, yeah, you get these stories that are like straight out of folklore.org because, well, Hertzfeld is the creator of that site uh, where someone would have an idea and he would stay up coding all night and they would come into the office and then there would be the thing that they had they had talked about. And that was giving them the sense of great progress in the beginning because it was it it really was like magic. Uh, anything that you can dream up of, um, you know, as long as you've said it before you leave the office at 10 o'clock at night and then give it off to Andy and the magic fairies and the literal rabbit that they had as a mascot in the office and poof, like you're back to it the next day. That's a good point. Uh, I don't think we've talked about the company's uh like corporate logo is a rabbit coming out of a top hat. And uh, so there's that, you know, the general magic. That's one of the classic magic tricks. But yeah, there also is a live rabbit that lives in the office. (laughs) And uh, as we start in this section to see glimpses of the interface, um, uh, the the Macintosh had the wristwatch cursor, Windows had the hourglass. Maybe nowadays we know the beach ball or the kind of spinning loading indicator as the computer's thinking the computer's doing something. But uh, on the General Magic device, it was a spinning top hat. Yeah, there was lots of little animations and whimsy, and they didn't really talk about this, although although I guess um, I don't know how much of that Hertzfeld himself was doing the design as opposed to the coding. But, oh, by the way, guess who else is there at General Magic? Susan Kerr. Yep. So... All of the pixels are going to be put in exactly the correct place. Thank you very much. But all of this was coming together. The software experience that they were building looked really good. And it was interesting the way that they were prototyping it. They knew from the very beginning that they were trying to create this touch-based interface. And it looks like they were using resistive touch. They show some of the prototypes and how the resistive touch was calculated and talked about some of the problems with it. But the the way that they were rapidly prototyping it reminded me a lot of then how the iPhone was created later, where you would have this touchscreen on a board, mounted on a board, flat on a table, and then tethered to a Mac, because that was where, you know, that was where all your data was coming from, all your processing was coming from. And it's like, wow, I mean, we've seen... We've seen the behind the scenes photos now of early iPhone prototypes or even before that, the pre iPhone iPad kind of larger touchscreen prototypes that were hooked up to like, I don't know, like a Quicksilver G4 or something, (laughs) right? And it was if you just took the exact same thing and rolled it back in time 12, 15 years and say, here's a touchscreen, here's a Mac, put a cable, ribbon cable between them. It was exactly what they were doing. And a lot of that is out of necessity because, yeah, we see a lot of these devices that are tethered. And the prototypes that uh, the prototypes of the standalone devices that Megan Smith shows in a segment are, like she says, like, they're still in a startup stage. They may have some seed money, but they're, you know, they're working with off-the-shelf parts. They're not making 
custom production runs to China. Yeah. They're like, we literally got to go to fries and buy this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so like, you know, they're kind of at the mercy of how good these early touch screens are, which like you said, are, are not that great, not that precise. Um, and then it gets to a point where, so maybe they can, they can settle on a model and they can settle on a form factor, but now they've got to work on uh, a lot of customization in the way of miniaturization. And if they have to work with off the shelf components, how that, how can they minimize the volume in which all those components fit together? And there's this great quote that's like, we were essentially creating USB because we were, we were creating the, the interconnectivity <laughs> and trying to minimize, you know, the, the cables needed and all that stuff. They basically had to create everything, the software, the hardware and the, the, the interface between all of it. Yeah. And all at the same time, they had these ambitious goals. There's this one, Scene where uh, there, I believe that these were statements that were that were written down as missions for the product at the time that they were developing it, and there were like five or four or five phrases. But the one that struck me was that they wanted it to have quote the tactile satisfaction of a seashell to be this inherently pleasing object that I'm not sure that they got to, but made me think of the original iPhone mm. or like an iPhone 3G. And just how pleasing in the hand and round, you know, rounded and tightly made that product was. And then one of the, I think maybe the best thing that that original documentary footage captured was when Megan Smith was going through this literal cupboard of prototypes, just like pulling things out and untangling them. And they've got this big prototype screen and the filmmaker says, well, how small do you want it to be? And they go, well, we want to make it smaller. And then she just kind of gets this like impish look and says, eventually, someday it'll be your wristwatch and makes like a, you know, looking at her wrist indication. And it's like, man, power of hindsight is great. But like, yeah, like that's what Apple did. They're like, we need, we need a device that feel that is, you know, this size and feels great in your hand. And once we've had that for several years, we can make it as small enough to run iOS on your wrist. It's like, it, it was it every step along the way. Yes, the documentary is constructed this way, but it made you genuinely feel like these people had traveled from or somehow seen the future. <laughs> and and just to build on that, one of the figures who the, they interview um comes into the movie during this segment, this 1991 segment. And it's Kevin Lynch, who initially they say would go on to work at Adobe. Yeah, they're like, oh, he created Dreamweaver, which like, yeah, duh, no small accomplishment. But the real relevant piece is he runs the Apple Watch team. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things you uh, mentioned a couple of minutes ago that I want to just reiterate is uh, the story of like, yeah, we have this wild and crazy idea. We'll mention it to Andy Hertzfeld, and by the morning, it's done. The The actual example they give for that is the idea of um, the concept of rooms, like rooms in your house for each different suite of software applications on the device. So like you would have an office with a desk, and that's where you would have your Rolodex for contacts and your email and, and messaging. Um, and they show some of these rooms and the interface to kind of step left and right through the hallway with doors that go into the different themed rooms. And uh, initially that hallway reminded me of glider. It looked very much like a, a level in glider. And then once they actually got into the rooms, it reminded me of a 
a child's application called KidDesk, which I forget if we mentioned or not in our episode about um, children's software, but my family definitely had KidDesk and it was definitely the same paradigm of like, you get your own little uh, and <laughs> designed desktop that you get to put your links to the parents approved applications on, but they show up like uh, a bin of pencils for a drawing application or, you know, things like that. The way that I thought of this was my thought was what if Microsoft Bob had taste? That is, that's exactly what this is. But the craft of it to give an idea of what the software actually looked like it, it had, yeah, like you said, glider in a sense, but it had, because it was interactive and it was a way of navigating through important parts of the functionality of the device. It had that sense of a meticulously crafted hypercard stack or that level where someone has meticulously crafted a hypercard stack within an inch of its life. And they say, actually, you know, we need a little bit of a layer of a custom application on top of this. That was what it looked like. And obviously with Andy at the helm, that was probably more or less what you were getting. When I see this look, I think that whoever did it was hand dithering <laughs> pixel by pixel uh, the the custom interface. Well, no, no. You just use Bill's algorithm. He was there too. <laughs> uh, even more hypercard uh, references or you know implicit references is when they show uh, someone working in their IDE and actually writing the code. It's set in Monaco 9, the, uh, the, the gold standard of code that goes all the way back to HyperTalk, at least for me. So right at the transition to the next phase of this project, you know, they're going great guns, making all these awesome hardware prototypes, software prototypes, just putting in all, these fe- all the features that they can think of. Now they actually have to start thinking about the product and it being a business and that original vision of having connectivity. This is a communications device in large part. And so for that, they needed to have a partner for telecommunications. Remember, this is 1992. The World Wide Web does not yet exist. The internet does exist. And The way that you connect to it is via modem. And so they need a phone connectivity partner, and they go with what they call the phone company, which, like, at the time, yeah, (laughs) uh, AT&T. And I thought that this is so funny that it's just like the iPhone. I'm having my, my notes here, parentheses, technically singular, at the time of the iPhone launch, that that was their exclusive telephony partner. But Singular got bought by AT&T like a year and a half later. So you always think of it as just being the iPhone launched on AT&T because it was basically a done deal uh, that that was who the partner was to be. And it's so funny. Again, like the filmmakers want to draw all these parallels, but some of them are just so low hanging. It's like, well, there it is. You've got your awesome hardware, your awesome software, but you got to get the thing online. So yeah, as things are getting real for the General Magic team, things are getting real for the industry in ways that <laughs> directly affect General Magic. So uh, we skip ahead another two years. We're in a new section of the film, 1993. And we start specifically at the CES keynote in 1993, back when Apple <laughs> attended CES. Um, and here's where things start to go 
poorly for General Magic, Apple at CES announces the Newton. And here was where I thought that I was like, oh no, here's the point where Apple turns and becomes the villain in the story. But of course, they go back to the interviews with interview with Scully at this point because he was the big Newton proponent. And again, it's the sense of he hasn't given up on this idea that, yes, he first heard of from the people who went and founded General Magic, but the relationship hasn't crystallized in such a way that that's actually going to come back and be revenue for Apple, and he's still thinking post-PC. So he's spun up the Newton team within Apple, and he says in the interview, his goal was not to kill General Magic. He thought that the two platforms, there was room in that expanding industry for the two platforms to coexist. And the way that I read this was that he even thought that there would be healthy competition. And I think that we see this a ton with iOS and Android now, where, you know, it's fall, it's iPhone review season within the past couple of months. And people all the time, especially the people who only cover or primarily cover Apple, people say, well, do you want, you know, is is this Mac versus PC wars of the 90s, you want Android to vanish? It's like, no, like the world would be way worse if Android vanished because, or and if Google stopped making Pixel phones and that sort of thing, because if you're constantly leapfrogging over each other, you're driving the industry forward. Whereas if you have a monopoly, nothing happens. And that was what Scully was hoping for in 1993. And well, it didn't play out that way because neither the Newton nor the General Magic devices were successes. Instead, everything went all to palm which led to another era of relative stagnation until the iPhone. So, uh, best intentions here, but it didn't really work out the way that they foresaw. Yeah, the like the cultural mindset and some elements of just technology infrastructure weren't there. That's a theme that comes up a lot in this documentary, too. These are all the same ideas for for devices and the way the devices work that uh, manifested into everyday life today. Like that's, that's unquestionable, undeniable. Uh, But maybe the ideas just didn't have enough backing behind them for whatever reason in whatever realm to be a success in the early nineties. Right. And what I just alluded to with, uh, with the Newton and then with Palm devices is the story that's largely been told to this point. Oh, the Newton was ahead of its time. It failed. Palm saw what they were doing, had better technology, few more years under their belt, took over the market for PDAs. But again, this is the the shadow world where General Magic does in fact exist and they're right there if not ahead of what the Newton is doing and they have even more so this future-oriented vision. And they show this promo video. I, I should have gone back and watched this little clip of the documentary. It's one to look out for, one to revisit, where they show a promotional video 
that General Magic released shortly after the Newton was announced. It's all about what the device can do. And the whole visual metaphor is the cloud, where all of the services and things that the General Magic device will do for you is connecting these things in the cloud. And I have done a little research on this. Like, my ears perked up at first. I went, wait, when is this video from? Oh, it's actually from 1993. Is this, in fact, the first use of the word cloud in the connected computing sense? And as far as I can tell, yes, it is. (laughs) Mark Perrot or whoever was putting together that promotion, like, they came up with the term the cloud and the metaphor, the cloud. Um, Also, I thought it was really cool that the art style... Um, again, going beyond this sort of hallway metaphor into this uh, buildings in the cloud metaphor, uh, it reminded me a lot of the hand-drawn style of eWorld and of that being like, that being the the way that you envisioned uh, an online service or a cluster of online services. In terms of eWorld, it was sort of like this little planetoid that had all of your services on it, or you turn that inside out and it's like all of those things are up in the sky in clouds. Yeah, and I think that's got to be deliberate where the the internet up until that point, like you said, was like you you dial up into a BBS with your modem and it's like the terminal versus the, the GUI. Yeah, and you check your email on Pine. <laughs> yeah, and so to make this uh, experience and this technology accessible to the, a, a mainstream market, you've got to kind of make it look a little organic and use metaphors that relate to what is already their real world and not, um, yeah, it's, it's clouds. It's not, what's the famous thing? A series of tubes. (laughs) And it was interesting that, um, even though Newton and Apple were threatening at this point of, of running into the lead, that the kind of demos that general magic was doing at this point were actually pretty advanced in terms of the communication stuff that they were doing. This thing, um, where it seemed to all be mediated via email, but where like you could order theater tickets online. And one of the interviewees talked about their role in that was like, yeah, in a sense, it was a canned demo that like the theater didn't, hadn't actually set up infrastructure for this, but that the person who was on the other side making that technology work was like on another general magic device or maybe a Mac out like backstage or in the hallway and that they were actually doing it in real time with the technology that could have been adopted by a corporate partner, but just hadn't been. It's kind of like the early demos of uh, Google duplex where it's like, Oh yeah, there's a robot doing this. Actually. No, there's, there are humans (laughs) transcribing and and doing all the the calling for you, but we promise at some point it's going to work like this. But I think this was even closer to a realized technology where it could have just been a canned demo. It could have been at, at iPhone launch where the calculator app was a screenshot, or it could have been that when uh, Mark Perrot hit the button that said, order the tickets on his device, that it just played a canned animation. But that wasn't what they were doing. They were much closer to an actual product than... Uh, than you might have thought. And uh, to that point, so what we've been talking about is a a press event put on by General Magic that they kind of 
scrambled to put together in the wake of the Newton announcement to prove that, yeah, we're still here. We're still working on this incredible technology. And then uh, the documentary kind of takes a leap from this press event and and marketing blitz um, to then they file for what they call the first ever concept IPO. We don't actually have a product or a service uh, in the market. We're not making money. This is a public offering based purely on the potential of what we're going to do. And uh, I feel like, you know, it, depending on how cynical you are about many technology companies today, this is just another <laughs> example of like something General Magic did in the 90s that people are still doing today. Or, or that they did first, that they were 15 years ahead of their time. It's like they, they were not just ahead of this is where I said I was going to come back and make it dark about <laughs> the world we live in. <laughs> they were they were 15 years ahead of their time on capitalism. Yeah. Late capitalism hadn't quite struck yet. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is how we can do it. <laughs> yeah. Another like 15 years ahead parallel from that press event that we were just talking about. Parat literally says the phrase reinventing telephony. Again, perked my ears up because they do later in the documentary show uh, a couple of seconds from the original iPhone introduction. But Steve Jobs says Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And they said that they were reinventing telephony in 1993. It also made me think, you know, we were, even as historians, hadn't sort of just hadn't pursued this angle, didn't know about this company's history. I do wonder, though, people who had connections to personal connections to the people who were inside General Magic, how much they knew and retained of the history of what was going on here. You know, like, was the fact that Steve Jobs said Apple is going to reinvent the phone was that line written out of nothing or was that line written knowing that General Magic had said that line in 1993? Those are the questions that will probably not, are certainly not answered by the film and probably are difficult, if not impossible to answer, but are the things that really keep me thinking after the end credits roll in this. So as we kind of wind down this segment of the film, the year 1993, uh, General Magic, like, is is kind of on a forward trajectory, you know, they've they've successfully IPO'd, they've had their public press event, they're still working on the technology, but the film also starts to point out that like this is things aren't going as well as they may be outwardly expressing them to be. And they reveal some of the just dysfunction internally of the company, a company that couldn't really grow and definitely couldn't ship. I mean, it was all these people who flew the pirate flag on the Mac team at Apple. And it was, I don't know, it was like either corporate governance by anarchy or communism or some kind of combination of all of them where uh, they basically refused to have hierarchy or managers and certainly not project managers of any sort. And so even now that they had outside investors, public shareholders, people to whom they should have been accountable, there was no account. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted to keep making cool stuff. And making cool stuff is not shipping a project, which was uh, not good for them. And you even start to get signs of the, the, like, the very recent history of Andy and Bill 
growing impatient with a slow-moving apple happening to Andy and Bill at General Magic, where they bring up two separate uh, kind of lower-level employees. One is just an intern who says, hey, this thing called the World Wide Web is is starting to happen. This is where we need to be. But their relationship with AT&T essentially means like they're going to be in a private AT&T cloud and not connecting to the open web. And so like that's kind of a, a red flag. Which on the, which in, in, on the one hand was not a crazy thing to do at the time. The networks that looked like they were going to be commercially viable were your CompuServe and AOL and those sorts of things that were walled garden private clouds that looked like they could be lucrative. And the web, uh, I think it was a Kevin Lynch quote, he said, at, at, at this time, there was literally a list of every web page and you could just go through them all. <laughs> And then there was a a second employee, um, Pierre Omidar, who was at that point just a tech support engineer. And he's like, yeah, speaking about this web, uh, I just made a kind of a prototype website that kind of facilitates garage sales. Should we build this in? Like, maybe this is one of our rooms, maybe a garage. And uh, they're like, great idea, but we're not going to like officially make this part of our company. And so he went off and started eBay. (laughs) They sort of point this out, especially with this anecdote. It was like the place was lousy with talent. Yeah. You're one of your low level employees starts eBay and you could have had that. It's like, you know, who knows where the janitor from General Magic is now? He's probably a millionaire. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we move into 1994. We, the viewers and the film itself. Uh, Sony, who is one of the. Uh, partners under the General Magic um, Consortium is growing impatient because uh, on the other side of the valley, Apple is shipping actually two customers, the Newton. And so this kind of culminates in, in a mad rush for the General Magic Consortium to also ship and deliver a product. And uh, it's Sony who ends up being the hardware manufacturer. And this is the little bit that I do remember seeing somewhere in a Mac related magazine. The, the final shipping, the first shipping product with general magic technologies was the Sony magic link, uh, which was kind of a a widescreen portable device or a a wide oriented portable device that was very thick and retailed starting at $800 in 1994 money. Right, which I just looked up and is just under $1,400 today, which, you know, it's a, it's a loaded iPhone 11 Pro Max. <laughs> it was certainly expensive at the time. Um, but the ultimate form factor of the device, even though it was branded with Sony and all of that, um, I mean, it looked good and it looked comparable to the first generation Newtons. Uh, on the outside, if you just set two of them next to each other, you go, oh, yeah, these are definitely in the same class. There's footage of people using it, both like people who work at General Magic and, you know, like initial consumers. And one thing that I just hadn't considered throughout watching this because of the stuff about the cloud and and wireless connectivity and telephony. But it looked like maybe at least for initial setup or perhaps for the entire life span of using the device, you plugged your phone cord into the side of the Sony Magic Link to go online. Yeah, th- there was no cellular telephony with this at all. It was it was still landline, but it was it was built in. I think with the Newtons you could you could have like an adapter card to have network connectivity, but it wasn't necessarily built in. 
So here's here's another part of like this should be something good that's going on for general magic, but it ends up being somewhat of a disaster. They successfully ship their product. There's uh, some great footage from this like original documentary of every employee walking up uh, at a, like an all hands meeting at the office and getting their own Sony Magic Link, the, the fruit of their efforts. Um, but part of this launch effort was a product demo at a local fries and. The footage from this is pretty sad. Yeah, um, they also have original footage of Steve Wozniak showing up for this demonstration at the Fries. And man, this reminded me of walking into CompUSA in 1996 and trying to find that Mac section. (laughs) It was way in the back. The documentary mentions that um, it was way at the back, but also like the Fries staff was not up to speed on how this device worked or what its unique selling points right, are. Like they're, they're like, we're doing a thing. I, I didn't even know we were doing a thing. Yeah. So it, it, it didn't get off to a good start and it really never took off anywhere above that initial level. Um, there's a pretty sobering stat in here that really kind of crystallizes how poorly this general magic uh, initial product went. They say that they think about fewer than 3000 of these Sony Magic Links sold. And then even those were probably just friends and family. Like not many of the general public ever bought a general magic device. So we're we're kind of firmly in the decline. <laughs> and uh, we move into 1995. As we mentioned, they had an IPO. Uh, so I guess in 1995, up to two years after the IPO, they have their first shareholders meeting. You are required by law to have shareholder meetings, and it's not pretty. There was one interesting thing that came out of this clip from what seemed like a tense and awkward meeting, which is that Mark Perot, as he's talking about how they're uh, how they still have a future, he actually uses the word smartphone in the meeting, uh, and he's ta- he does mention a couple of other smart devices. Uh, and so maybe in his brain it was smart space phone, but he was still thinking of augmenting phones in that way that he had designed several years prior on paper and still saw was possible with actual technology in 1995. And again, this is one of those things where in terms of just the vocabulary that was being used they were ahead of the game, even as they were in the beginning of their death spiral. And I will admit, okay, so we've, we've been talking about this for a while. Um, and I will admit that at this point, uh, I went, okay, so this thing must be pretty much over. And I tapped the little uh, touchpad on my Apple TV remote, and it said there's a half hour left in the documentary. I'm like, but they're going to be out of business in five minutes. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, uh, it's definitely all declined from, from there on out and they don't, it may, it's longer than five minutes, but, uh, it's not for that much longer. The rest of the film is basically how the company kind of quietly stopped, uh, existing where people went, the fallout from that. And then, uh, a kind of, uh, positive swing at the end, the triumphant, where are they now? for all of the major players. Which, that was what I didn't realize, was so extensive that it definitely took 15 minutes. Some of these early exits are uh, Kevin Lynch 
leaves, um, goes to Adobe, and then, of course, later on returns to Apple and now leads the watch. Tony Fidel tells a story about how um, he's he's still working or he's still excited about working on hardware from within General Magic. Like we were just talking about how Sony actually got to manufacture, design and manufacture the first hardware device. But Tony tells a story about how he had hardware designs that he wanted to work on, but he wanted to collaborate with the software team inside general magic like hey i have these things can you make software to help run these things and he didn't get the support he wanted there so he also moves on and then it kind of the film kind of takes a leap from the the turmoil um with the kind of traditional shots of newspaper scans that show the 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 plunging stock price graph and all those things and all of a sudden, Andy Hertzfeld is in the present day walking around the Computer History Museum in San Jose and like seeing the magic link on display, seeing the Apple II and the original Macintosh on display and just kind of wistfully remembering the good old days. That was brutal because, I mean, he has always seemed like such a upbeat character, mm-hmm. even in recent interviews. I was glad that they didn't make the computer history museum just a place of death and dust and gloom that was kind of rock bottom and then they spun that around into the where are they now segment because they the documentary makers filmed at an event that was held at the computer history museum one of those uh like long uh interviews that they do and post from time to time, they did one with Tony Fidel. And either just through Tony or through the the documentary as well, they like got the band back together where at least half a dozen of these personalities that you've seen throughout the film were in attendance at that talk that he did, which was mostly focused around his um, time developing the iPod, but obviously what went before and what went after and what went before large part of that was general magic. And then at the end of the talk, they're all like smiles and hugs and how are you? And it was like, Oh, okay. Like everyone's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And in many cases way better than okay. So yeah, we've been talking about like this, this incredible assembly of talent that goes off and continues to, individually do incredible things and ed you made the joke like i bet the janitor's up to something and then it's it's at this point in the film where they they kind of offhandedly were like oh yeah andy rubin was also at general magic and you're like what 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 now (laughs) yeah and i didn't find this out until just before we started recording today um i'm looking at the general magic website uh i wanted to get a little more information on who was responsible for making the movie, that kind of thing. And you go down to the part about people who were producers and stuff on on the film. And one of the executive producers is John John Andrea. Apparently, he was at General Magic too. Who knew? <laughs> he wasn't even mentioned in the entire film. Uh, he was there. Then he went to Netscape. Then he did all the AI stuff at Google. And now he's a senior VP at Apple. Uh, and it's like, what? Like, what? What kind of, like, what was in the water at General Magic? Uh, Megan Smith, who we talked about as she's, like, kind of uh, beaming as she shows you the the hardware prototypes and hints at p- 
potentially uh, it minimizing down to being on your wrist in the future. Turns out she was our country's chief technology officer under Barack Obama. Spoiler alert, Barack Obama is in this documentary. What? <laughs> And everyone continues. Like, I, I forgot that Andy Hertzfeld actually did go onto Google and did like Google Circles or part of Google Plus. Right. That was like the last five years of his career. And now he's happily retired. I put a note in here that um, I think people talk about the PayPal mafia and the incredible talent and company starting talents that came out of PayPal and its successful IPO that minted a bunch of billionaires. We already talked about Elon Musk, uh, Max Levchin, um, Peter Thiel. Uh, the uh, Reed Hoffman, I think, um, like a whole bunch of of founders and CEOs and starters of successful companies came out of PayPal and the wealth that they accumulated there. Um, but yeah, I, why don't people talk about the general magic mafia? Oh yeah, and there was one guy who he got like one still image. There was like not even any film footage of him. He shows up for three seconds. They're like, oh yeah, he founded LinkedIn. You're like, what? <laughs> It was just an incredible tour at the end. This is pretty much the end of the documentary, uh, a really uplifting Where Are They Now segment. Um, and, and and like you said, there are, there are maybe five or six additional employees who appear as freeze frames from the initial documentary. And like they, they weren't interview subjects, but there are people who were there who have gone on to do things, too. So it really is just a, a I'm blown away by by all the influence this company has had on the tech world today. Um, and then it, it kind of concludes on this Tony Fidel interview live at the Computer History Museum. Um, just to reiterate that, like, he was the first interview subject at the beginning of the movie. He's there as the movie winds down. Um, and and he's, he's a very interesting through line. He's very charismatic throughout the entire thing. So it works to have him kind of be our guide through the rise and fall of general magic. Right. And you asked me this question as we were preparing, is Fidel the through line in this documentary? Obviously. But then I think that's also the broader question is like, is he the through line in the entire technology industry and ramifications of what came out of general magic? And I think you have to answer that question. Yes. And the primary reason for me is that he's the link back to Apple. You know, all of these people who are on the original Mac team, you know, they did not go on to go back to Apple because the people who who left and came back to Apple were the ones who went the next route and came back in 97 with Steve Jobs through that acquisition. The people who went out on their own, I mean, there are many people who... Even to this day, Apple has that kind of open door policy. If you're if if you're a smart person making great stuff for Apple and you want to try something on your own, whether it succeeds or fails, the door is typically left open. But it turned out that the paths of the people who did General Magic did not circle back to Apple. But the bright talent who came into General Magic first and who had not been at Apple before was what connected back to Apple. Because through the general magic people, he got put in touch with Steve Jobs. And as he puts it in that concluding interview, basically he got a phone call from Steve to say, can you come make the iPod for us? Yeah. Obviously, that was much later, several years later. He also talks in the closing interview about this decade of personal failure 
that he has starting at General Magic. Obviously, like they didn't ship a successful product. And this was his first job out of college, right? Like he has not had a real personal success to this point. And then he um he goes, he's at Phillips, I think, and he has his own startup that doesn't do well. And he's like, yeah, it was just this decade of failure. And he doesn't make this claim, but I think that what he's saying is like, it was a decade of failure for the entire industry that they were not able to connect what was created in the Newton, what was created, especially in Magic Cap, the Magic Link, all of the general magic technology to what was being produced in the, you know, in the production pipeline, what was possible with the parts that were being developed and were on the cutting edge uh, and were at the level that you could sell them to consumers. It's like they just like sat out for an entire decade. And when I sat down and they said, this is a story of the company that affects billions of people because they all have smartphones. It's like, well, okay, that's one way of reading it. But I think the the more interesting thing that Fidel gets at and that you can only really appreciate having seen the entire story, it, the upshot is that the smartphone revolution was coming one way or another. Pocket computing devices that are communication devices, like in one sense that was inevitable, but General Magic was so far ahead of the curve, but then like they were ahead of the curve and then they were where the curve should be. And then there was this gap and that the smartphone revolution really should have happened around like the year 2000. If everything had been continuing properly, we should have had capable mobile devices that included all of these functionalities around then. The technology was there. They would have been, you know, they would have been chunky. They would have been more like the big palm devices uh, or a knocked down Newton, but it was possible, but we didn't get there until 2007, 2008 with the iPhone that came from, that was a team led by a person who was inside the office at General Magic. And that's the sad part of the story is like, wow, the world could be six years further ahead, <laughs> maybe 10 years further ahead than it actually is if uh, if this had all gone well. Um, the, the happy part of the story is that pretty much everybody landed on their feet, yeah. including Mark Perrot, who had maybe the roughest bit of it. Like he talks about how he was working so hard that his marriage failed and then he didn't really work much in the tech industry afterwards, but he seems like he has a new marriage. He has new kids. He seems happy. He seems successful. Like even the person who had the roughest, the roughest letdown from the failure of general magic is, is back on their feet now in the, uh, in the fullness of time. And he still has his red binder. And so he, he can always lay claim to, coming up with these things 25 years in advance. I, I would pay money for like a special print run edition of just whatever the hell's in that binder. So yeah, that's general magic. I think uh, I'll speak for Ed here and say both of us highly recommend it, especially if you enjoy listening to this show, you will enjoy watching this documentary. Yes, absolutely. One of the, one of the best pieces of 
tech res- retrospective that I've seen anywhere recently. So thumbs up. And again, the link to the General Magic Marketing website is in our show notes. They have links on there to uh, download or stream at a variety of places, but yeah, iTunes is one of them. So that's what we went with. And I think what we recommend in the spirit of General Magic, as well as just like being fans of the Apple platform. Yeah, it's it's allegedly in 4K. I don't have the hardware to play it, but um, hardware or software, I guess if I updated my Mac to Catalina, but we're not doing that for the time being. Yeah. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, many good ways to watch this. Set aside the time if you haven't already. Um, or if you have, uh, maybe now that you've heard our commentary, go back and watch those uh, those couple choice scenes that uh, that are real thought provokers for the future. As always, if you think there's something we missed that would be especially relevant to our show in a viewing of General Magic, or you'd like to share your thoughts on the documentary with us, uh, we'd love to hear it. We have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or you can send the bite-sized pieces of feedback to us on Twitter, at simple underscore beep. Yeah, any kind of links or other resources that also go like in depth on general magic would be really cool to include in follow up because as we said, this was our first real foray into this Apple adjacent company and uh my interest has been piqued. I I would love to see more stuff about uh about this company, its products, uh how they functioned and and how it all turned out. Absolutely. You can also get in touch with us uh, individually on Twitter. I'm over at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.